evening. Jeremiah chapter 39. Tonight, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And tonight, Jeremiah chapter 39. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now and just wave them down. They'll put a Bible in your hand and uh, it'll be marked to our passage tonight so you can follow along and, uh, and get not only the truth of God's Word into the ear gate, but into the eye gate as well. When we come into uh, chapter 39 in the book of Jeremiah, it, uh, it, it, it describes the, the fall uh, of the city of Jerusalem uh, to the Babylonians, but more than this physical act that's been kind of building up now for chapters and chapters, God warning and so forth. Basically, chapter 39 is a vindication of uh, Jeremiah's ministry. He had been warning for 40 years that this is coming. Judgment is coming from the north. It's going to come from the Babylonians. Repent, turn away from your rebellion and your wickedness and turn away from your idolatry. And for 40 years, under the influence of false prophets and their own self-will in their flesh, they managed to disregard the message. They bet that God's word was not going to come to pass. I think there is a funny thing that happens, and uh, they, they say that misery uh, loves company, and certainly it does, but there's something that can happen when a large group of people, even God's people, can begin to believe something isn't going to uh, come to pass, even though God has warned related to it. And there's something about feeling like there's comfort in numbers. We can't all be wrong. But if all of us in this room and every Christian and person in the whole world uh, bets against even one single promise of God coming to fulfillment, uh, we can know that we are wrong and we will be proven wrong uh, on that. The uh, interest, you know, prophecy, and what Jeremiah has been doing is he's been prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. Prophecy is very simply history in advance, and only God can supply it. And now he's going to, we're going to see the fulfillment of 40 years of history in advance. I, th I think before we get into the chapter itself, it's good to remember in terms of the age in which we live. We live thousands of years after Jeremiah. But God has given us a lot of prophecy in the Bible, a lot of history in advance that is, is surely going to come to pass one day as uh, the prophecies of Jeremiah. When you read the book of Revelation, the prophecy of the end of the age and the, uh, the birth of the kingdom age and then ultimately the new heaven and the new earth, all of that is going to happen uh, exactly as it's written there. Peter wrote about the fact that even 2,000 years ago, people were looking and scoffing at, you know, the prophecies of the Word of God. This isn't going to happen. There isn't going to be the end of the age. There isn't going to be a new heaven and a new earth and so forth and all. Everything is going to continue on as it always has. We don't see God doing anything like that uh, of, of the sort, you know. And, and they, people, and the temptation is in our own heart to view God's delays as meaning that the prophecies aren't going to come to pass. God delayed 40 years with the children of, of Judah here, and then one day that was it. It all came to pass right on, uh, on their lap and on their doorstep. And uh, Peter wrote concerning all of this and the scoffing that goes on even yet today and uh, says that, uh, that we are not to view God's patience, his long-suffering, as weakness on his part, or to believe that the prophecies aren't going to come to pass. It, they, he only delays because he's not willing that any should perish, 
but that all would come to repentance. It's his grace. He's waiting for that last Gentile to come on, and then uh, that end times program uh, will proceed. But uh, this is what we see here. It is interesting, I think, too, as you would, uh, you know, we, I quote at least fairly often where Jesus declares that uh, concerning the Word of God, that heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my Word will not pass away. And to realize that that was given in the context of the Olivet Discourse, his, his uh, prophecies concerning uh, the end of the age. And so here uh, we come into it now, uh, the, the fall of the city finally. You certainly can't say God didn't warn them. And uh, I, all I can say is related to my own personal history, and I don't think I'm unusual in this at all, is uh, any time I've fallen on my face over something, it is never because God didn't warn me ahead of time. Damien, watch yourself. Look out there. Uh, don't enter into that conversation or whatever it might be. He always warns. He always warns. The issue is whether we're going to take him seriously and uh, heed his warnings or not. They didn't, and, and it's, a, it's a bad scene, really. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, uh, in the tenth month, uh, king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all of his army came against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. So the actual siege of the city of Jerusalem itself took place uh, over a period of 18 months. So all the food begins to disappear within the city, all of the water sources, all of the disease, all of that. And then finally on this date, uh, the city wall was penetrated and in comes the Babylonian uh, army as God had promised would be the case. And then all of the princes of the king of Babylon came in and they sat in the middle gate, Nergal, uh, Sherezer, uh, Samgar, Nebo, uh, Sharshechem, uh, Rabsaris, uh, Nergal, Sharizer, uh, Ram, uh, Rabmag, that would be my choice of these names right there, uh, if we we're going to choose one of them. Uh, Rabmag, it's, I don't know what it's got, it's got a little masculine side to it and, and uh, little, a little rough uh, too, you know. Uh, so, all of these, these are the names, they came with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. So, they come in, they penetrate the city, and when it talks about the princes setting themselves up in Jerusalem in the middle gate, that means the entire city's been secured. Uh, you don't bring your leaders and your princes and kings and so forth into a, a city that isn't secure. Uh, Jerusalem has been completely uh, conquered and defeated. And so it was when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, at the time of her fall to Babylon, and all of the men of war uh, saw them break through, penetrate the city, that they then uh, fled so much for the common people who are bearing the consequences of the decisions of these uh, people, uh, this king and these men of war, they see that this is a lost cause, and so they then fled, and they went out of the city by night. They realized this is, we've just got, uh, we're not going to have another night to try and escape in. This is, this is it. Let's get out. And they went by way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls, and they went out by the way of the plain. And basically what they're heading out into from Jerusalem, some of you have been to Jerusalem and others of you are going to Jerusalem, all of us ultimately get there, but it will be heavily re reconfigured by uh, the tribulation period. So 
with what we read there. But to head out of Jerusalem and in the direction that they're heading into toward Jericho is to cross a very, very barren area uh, known as the Judean wilderness. And basically, they're making a, re a run for the Dead Sea area, a very, very bar barren area which they could have, uh, you know, secured and hidden if they could get to the caves and so forth. This is their plan, uh, uh, making a beeline toward the Dead Sea. Well, you know, the Nebuchadnezzar didn't just become a war-ruling emperor overnight and doesn't know that this is what the leadership of a city is going to try to do. So the Chaldean army then pursued them and overtook uh, Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They got a fair distance, uh, but they didn't get anywhere uh, near the Dead Sea. And when they had uh, captured him, they brought him up to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment uh, upon them. And so uh, this, uh, he, he's brought here uh, to, to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had apparently set up his headquarters for the siege of Babylon uh, for the army as a whole up in the north, about 200 miles to the north in this city uh, called uh, Riblah. And so there he is following the conquest of the, the city and, and the king of Judah is brought uh, before him and, uh, and, and where Nebuchadnezzar pronounced judgment upon the king. And then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah uh, before his eyes in Riblah. And one note, by the way, all of this that we're going to read here in, in the next moment or two, completely unnecessary, completely unnecessary. And, and here is a king who not only makes decisions not to turn to God and to lead a nation into repentance, but to also get right with God himself, so addicted to his sin and his own self-will uh, that the, the last thing he's going to see with his own eyes is to see his son slain uh, before his eyes. And uh, the greatest thing that any father can do for their children, any husband can do for their wife, is to be a godly man, to walk with God, to obey God's commandments. Whether we see it impacting or making any kind of a big difference, it doesn't matter. Uh, but it, nothing, nobody ever wants to be in this kind of a place and to see what happens to the children because of the sin uh, of the father here. And so this is, this is his failure. This is what, uh, what happens here. And uh, the same thing that is true of a father is true and, and of a husband is true of a wife and uh, related to children or a mother. And, uh, and so here he's disregarded all of that and, and he basically acts for 40, you know, the years of his term as king as if this is some uh, big game that's being played. Well, I don't know what he was, had going on in his mind, uh, but Nebuchadnezzar was playing uh, for keeps. And so he took the sons, killed them uh, before the very eyes of uh, Zedekiah there, and, and then the king of Babylon then killed all of the nobles of Judah. So when we read earlier, all of those princes and so forth that were in the room saying, don't cut the scrolls, and everyone who was in power, Nebuchadnezzar came in, they were a part of the rebellion, the loss of Babylonian lives to take the city and so forth. And so uh, this was the way it was done in, in those days, and they just killed all of the uh, 
nobles, and moreover, he then put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. It was customary uh, in those days, and what Nebuchadnezzar would do, and he does here, is uh, this is very uh, deliberate. This is a, a very precise thing that he's doing. This isn't random that's happening. He's not working out of rage. He kills the sons of Zedekiah before him, and then he gouges Zedekiah's eyes out. So the last thing he will have seen for the remainder of his life is the death of his children with the idea of let this haunt you, let this taunt you uh, in, in the consequences of the decisions that you have made. Uh, Babylon plays for keeps. They did. It's serious business to go to war with them, serious business to play games with them. And as ruthless and as Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar could ever be to us, as it's described in Scripture here, the Bible teaches that we have an enemy who's far more ruthless uh, than Nebuchadnezzar could ever dream of being, and that is the devil himself. And if we give him an opportunity through protracted period of time of rebellion against God, of his commandments, and, and a disregard for obedience to the Word of God and so forth, we set ourselves up to see our families destroyed before our eyes, to lose everything. I can't tell you, I've been a pastor for 32 years, I think at this particular point, and I can't tell you how many people have chosen the path of Zedekiah, and despite a track record of never seeing anyone be successful in a rebellion against God. And you look at them and you plead with them over and over again, and then ultimately the hour comes where they lose absolutely everything that they rejected God in an endeavor to gain and to hold on to, they lost all of it. And Zedekiah does here. It is, a, it is a great deception and it's a great temptation that we need to be aware of in our own lives uh, tonight. The devil plays for keeps, obeying God, walking with him, being serious about our relationship with God is, uh, is very uh, serious business. And so then he was carried off then in fetters to Babylon. He survives in Babylon uh, for a number of years before he drops off of, uh, of the record. And then the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses uh, of the people, that is the prominent people, with fire. And he broke down the walls of Jerusalem. So this is beyond the destruction. They come in and they destroy the city on one level in order to penetrate it and defeat it. Now this is, again, something that's deliberate on top of that. Now they're going to destroy every significant building within the city, starting with the king's palaces, the prince's palaces, and, and the offices of government and so forth, and then to break down the wall as well. Uh, remember, this is the third time that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar has had to come into Judah and conquer Jerusalem. Third time they've rebelled against him, and so he comes in and he basically says, I'm going to reduce this place to rubble. I am not coming back a fourth time. And uh, so this is the uh, level of destruction that was meted out upon the city. And then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard of the Babylonian uh, army and the, an adjunct to Nebuchadnezzar uh, carried away captive to Babylon then the remnant of the Jewish people who remained in the city, those who survived the battle and the siege, and then also those who had defected to uh, Babylon during uh, all of this long siege and war 
with the rest of the people who uh, remained. He carries them away and puts them in a group to take off to Babylon. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land uh, of Judah the poor people who had nothing and gave them vineyards uh, and fields uh, at the same time. And so that poor remnant is left uh, in the land. It wasn't in anybody's uh, best interest, certainly not for Nebuchadnezzar, for the entire land of Judah to collapse and just uh, be overtaken with anarchy and tribes and, and all kinds of things. It was uh, best that the land continue to be worked and, and be productive. And only peasants really could be trusted to do that without uh, rising up and leading another rebellion against Babylon. And so uh, this was the thinking behind uh, everything that uh, was, uh, w uh, was going on in the decision-making as it's happening here. Again, the, uh, here you have the nation in the, the sadness of it betting against uh, the Word of God and the truth of God as God spoke it through Jeremiah. And I look at this scene and it just infuriates me on one level, and I, I hope not in a carnal way, and I ask myself, where are these false prophets now? Where are these false teachers that for 40 years consoled the people in their sin, told them they didn't have to take this seriously, the judgment wasn't going to come uh, upon them? And I look at it, the kings that even came before Zedekiah, where's the big scroll cutter now? cutting the Word of God up and disregarding it and throwing it in the fire, as if that makes any difference in human history and as it has any bearing upon uh, the fulfillment of, of the Word of God. And it's very, very sad uh, to watch here is an entire nation that uh, bet uh, their, their entire future uh, against the Word of God that somehow it, it would be proven wrong, and the Word of God can never, ever be proven wrong. And I think it really is a good thing for just one more moment to stop before we leave chapter 39 here and to really let the theme of it and, and uh, sink into our hearts. And, and the, the danger of sin, the riskiness of sin, God warned and warned and warned through Jeremiah, but they didn't listen. The fact of the matter is for every single person in this room, and I don't think, I think the days that we live in now as Christians are every bit as seductive and dangerous as ever they were in the time of Jeremiah. And for us to stop and to realize for every single one of our lives, we are going to each of us, our lives are going to prove the Word of God true. That is a given. That we have no control over. What we do have control over is whether our lives are going to prove the Word of God true on the side of blessing through obedience, or we're going to prove His Word uh, through, true uh, through cursing and judgment on the side of disobedience. And so again, as we're getting closer to the end of the book of Jeremiah, so important that this cleanses us away from any kind of sin, socially acceptable sin. This is what got them. And that is that within Judaism at that time, it was just like, this is socially acceptable within Judaism. And a lot of sins are becoming socially acceptable even among Christians. And you look at the Barner reports and the Pew reports and so forth on, on the collapse of these kind of things and to allow the Word of God uh, to wash this kind of attitude away from us because uh, God is going to keep His promises. Uh, one way or another, and how he longs for us to be on the blessing side of his promises, as any father would uh, toward his sons and his daughters. Now, Nebuchadnezzar 
uh, the king of Babylon, he gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard. And he said, so here's Nebuchadnezzar. He knows Jeremiah, and, and obviously over time he's heard there's a prophet inside of Jerusalem that's telling them, you know, as people would uh, escape and, and surrender to the Babylonians, there's a prophet in there that's telling the kings and the leaders these things. And so they became familiar with, uh, with Jeremiah's uh, ministry and and he and he takes note of Jeremiah and says, "Take him and look after him and do him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. Whatever he requests, give it to him." And so Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, sent uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh man, I, call him to dinner all your life. Is it? But yet it'd be your own. It'd serve you right as a parent uh, for naming your son that has got to be an offensive lineman for some NFL team. Uh, the captain of the guard it, 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 it sent this man, and then uh, Rabsaris and Nergal Shazizer, and then Rabmag is back, and all of the kings of Babylonians, uh, chief officers. And then uh, they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to Gedaliah, uh, the son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. And so he dwelt among the people. And so, as we'll see a little bit later, Jeremiah is given freedom to do whatever he wants. And uh, Jeremiah makes the choice to stay with, uh, in Judah. He makes the choice to stay with the Jewish people, even in this catastrophic state. And one of the things that his choice reveals to us and revealed to the whole nation and all of Jewish history is that when he prophesied, he was not a traitor. If he was a traitor, uh, at, at all, or unpatriotic, he would have ran for Babylon. They're, they offer him a lifetime pension and the full income and everything, you know, and the best of Babylon. If he'd go to Babylon, he says no to all of it to stay in Judah. And because he, for him in his ministry, it wasn't that he was anti, you know, uh, Judah and pro-Babylon or any of that. He was just pro-God to declare the word of God to uh, to the people here. But his, his decision here, and we'll see it kind of detailed a little bit more in chapter 40, uh, indicates that uh, his heart was right. He loved, he, he prophesied, he spoke. Uh, Paul, when he wrote about continuing to speak the Word of God and the difficulty and all of the hardships of his life, he said, it was the love of God that constrained me. It's the love of God that lays hold on my life that will not let me uh, go silent in that way. And it was the same thing uh, related to Jeremiah. He loved God and he loved the people. That was the secret behind his faithfulness. And of course, the Lord in the New Testament, when you come to pastors and leaders within the church, Jesus spoke to the apostles on the Sea of Galilee following his resurrection, spoke to Peter specifically and said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And it's the chief way that a uh, a leader within God's people expresses not only their love for the people, but their love for God by being faithful to declare God's word to them. And meanwhile, the word of the Lord uh, had come to Jeremiah 
while he was shut up in the court of the prison, uh, saying, go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian. So somehow in the whole final part of the battle, uh, Jeremiah is still in prison. You remember Ebed-Melech from last time we were in the Scriptures. He's the one that came along, the Ethiopian eunuch, who took the ropes along with the rags and all to help pull Jeremiah out of uh, probably hip-deep uh, mire that he was in and that, that cistern and all. Well, remember, as an Ethiopian eunuch here and being so close to Zedekiah, he's, he's going to be on the list of being uh, killed almost immediately by the Babylonians. Uh, but God uh, looks at uh, looks at the situation, and he has a word from Jeremiah to Abed-Melech because of his good work that was done to Jeremiah. And he said, go and speak to Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you. You're going to see all of it. You're going to see the fall of Jerusalem. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you were afraid. He's terrified. He holds a high position, though he disagrees with the king. He's going to be guilty by virtue of the position and, and, and uh, without God's intervention killed. And the Lord further declared to him, for I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. So it tells us it was his uh, relationship with God that caused him to, to run the risk of going to King Zedekiah and asking for the means by which to pull Jeremiah uh, out of that miry clay. One of the things that this word to Ebed-Melech teaches us here is, you know, I think that sometimes when you live in a culture or in a nation that is throwing off uh, God's word, throwing off God's standard and, 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 and so forth, and you can begin to look at it and, and the whole progression of it and, and uh, look at the culture, look at the nation and, and look at and say, it's so far gone spiritually, it's so far gone uh, morally that only judgment awaits it. And then it can seem to us as Christians, what's the use of doing anything good or doing anything right or walking with God in the middle of this mess? We're just one in a thousand, not even one in a hundred. We're one in a thousand trying to do this. What difference does it make? That's not our problem. That's not our problem. And even if a whole nation is determined to go down into judgment, God notices the individual's within that nation who do the right thing, even in the midst of that context, he notices it and, and he rewards it and he uh, acts uh, uh, accordingly. And, and that's good for us to know because sometimes you can just look at things and say, it's moving so quickly, it's collapsing so quickly, what could I ever do to make a difference? But we're still called to be salt and light and it makes a difference. It makes a difference at least that God sees and it blesses his heart. Then in chapter 40, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, 
had let him uh, go from Rama when he had taken him bound in chains among all uh, who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and, and Judah and who were carried away captive to uh, Babylon. And so uh, here's this chapter deals with the uh, certain events in Jeremiah's life after the fall uh, of, of Jerusalem in the confusion of the fall of the city. Jeremiah had uh, been rounded up with all of the other uh, deportees, but he was uh, uh, later, as we've seen, uh, freed and given his choice of, of staying in, in Judah or going off uh, to Babylon. Uh, probably is, is the whole scene geographically within our mind. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had probably come from up in the north, Ribla, where he had, had kind of um, managed his campaign for the, the uh, overthrow of Judah and, and, uh, and Jerusalem. And now he comes down a new name, not Ribla, but Rama uh, is here, just about five miles north of Jerusalem. And this becomes a staging point now uh, to uh, name and identify the people that have been, uh, been taken captive and the staging point now to uh, deport them off to Babylon. And so this is uh, the situation that Jeremiah found himself in. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God has pronounced doom on this place, and now uh, the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said, uh, because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. Have you ever had a non-Christian uh, rebuke you as a Christian? for not doing what you should be as a Christian? How, how big do you feel? Uh, it's about that. Too tall? Yeah, you're right. I just cut it in half right there. And of course, he's talking to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, he knows full well Jeremiah is innocent of, of all of this. But here's the recognition by this uh, officer here that uh, God had pr been pronouncing the doom over and over and over again, and he's done just uh, what he's done. And, and, the, and the captain of the guard knows exactly why, because you've sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice. And now, uh, look, I free you this day from the chains that were on your hand. If it seemed good to you uh, to come with me to Babylon, uh, then come, and I'll look after you. And this is the offer of a lifetime of security. Hey, you've been through hard. Remember, Jeremiah, he's skin and bones at this point. Everybody is that was in Jerusalem. And I'll take you to Babylon, the great city, the beauty of it. We'll get you again a nice pension. There'll be a nice income for the rest of your life. You'll be highly esteemed and so forth. Anything you could want, we'll take care of you if you choose to come to Babylon. And, uh, but if it seems wrong to you for you to come with me to Babylon, then remain here in, in Judah. And see, all of the land is before you. Whatever it, uh, whatever it seems good and convenient for you to go, then go there. Now, while Jeremiah had not yet gone back, Jeremiah isn't wavering here. He knows exactly what he's going to do, but there's some kind of a hesitation. And Nebuzaradan then said to him, go back to Gedaliah. He sensed that he's going to stay 
in Judah. Gedaliah is going to be made uh, kind of the overseer of Judah by Babylon, a Jew living uh, in, in, uh, in Jerusalem and in Judah to kind of oversee it as a province of the Babylonian Empire. And so he said, go back to uh, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has made governor over the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or else, uh, or go wherever it seems convenient uh, for you to go. Go into any city within the land, anywhere you want to go in Israel. And so the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. Uh, it is interesting to look. You see, you see the rations and the gift and then lets him go. Jeremiah is here uh, treated better by the Babylonians than he was by his own people for simply being uh, faithful uh, to deliver God's word over those long years of, of the prime and beyond uh, of, his, uh, of his life. And Jeremiah then went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, to Mizpah, and he dwelt with him among the people who were uh, in uh, the land. And uh, Mizpah is about eight miles north of Jerusalem. This is going to become where Gedaliah is going to attempt to uh, govern uh, the province now. Jerusalem is an absolute ruin, and, and he doesn't want to do it from there, and there's probably a continued destruction of the city by the Babylonians anyway. And when all the captains of the armies who were in the fields, uh, they and their men, when they heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah the son of Ahikim governor of the land and had committed to him men, uh, women, children, and the poorest of the land who had not been carried away to Babylon, then they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. So you've got all of these military commanders that had uh, probably uh, scattered in the course of of the conquest of Judah by Babylon and uh, heading up probably guerrilla warfare actions against the Babylonian armies operating out of the surrounding countries and so forth. Now when Judah finally falls and they realize Gedaliah is going to be made uh, the governor here, there's obviously among everybody a great respect for Gedaliah. They then come out of the woodwork and say, all right, let's work together. We're behind you. We recognize your authority, your leadership, and we're going to support you uh, in this. And uh, some of the names of, uh, of these men are given to us, Ishmael, the son of um, uh, Nethaniah, and uh, Johanan, and then Jonathan, the sons of uh, Caria, uh, Sarah, uh, the son of, okay, uh, uh, the, and then... Um, uh, then the sons of Ephai, and then uh, and they they and all their men. End of verse uh, eight. There they all came. Uh, Ishmael is worth noting in the verse, and then Jonathan as well. They're going to play prominently. This is one of the reasons that they're mentioned. There are probably a large number of these men, but they're going to play prominently in in the history as we go through the narrative. And Gedaliah, the son of uh, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, he took an oath before them and their men saying, do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. So uh, the Chaldean, we're going to keep a Chaldean, a, a Babylonian military force, a very light one in Judah. That's what they did in their provinces. And he's saying, listen, you're ex-military. Uh, you've got kind of the, this kind of blood on your hands and so forth. But uh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the Chaldeans coming against you. Let's serve them. We've got a new reality here. God's Word has come to pass. Let's accept uh, our, new, our new place here and, uh, and, and see how we might 
how we might prosper. And so dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will be well with you. So Gedaliah begins to make some very good decisions here as a leader. The first thing you want to stop is the instability of kind of terrorist actions going on or, or kind of guerrilla warfare against the Babylonian uh, force that is there. Uh, so he's, he's, he's trying to uh, halt the, the guerrilla activity to, to stabilize the, the new situation. He said, as for me, I will indeed dwell at Mizpah and I will serve the Chaldeans who come to us. I'm, my position is I'm going to become the a ruler of the land under them in the way that they've requested of me. I'm going to submit to their authority. He's letting them know, this is, this is how I see things. And then he said, but you, gather wine and summer fruit and oil. Now, you know, we read those things and we don't smack our lips because, you know, we have Hershey bars and Mounds bars and brownies and so forth. But wine and summer fruit and oil, those were luxuries in those days. And uh, so you go gather these things, put them in your vessels, and dwell in your cities that you have taken. And, and basically, get Elias saying to these rule, to these military men, and also the common people: this, the land is prosperous. It, 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 and look at all of the fruit. Look at all that is yours. Look at the cities that are now abandoned. You can have live in whatever home you want, and so forth, in order to maintain a Jewish presence within uh, within the land. There was a good life to be had in their circumstance if they would have obeyed God, but even they are not going to do that. And likewise, when all of the Jews, the common people who were in Moab and among the Ammonites in Edom, these are surrounding nations of Judah, they had scattered out uh, under the uh, you know, the fear for the war and the battles that were going on. And they were in all of these countries. And then they heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah. There were Jews still in the land. And, and you know, Nebuchadnezzar hadn't wiped all of them out or deported all of them. And that he had even set Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, uh, the son of Shaphan, uh, over all of them. And then the Jews returned out of all of these places where they had uh, been driven. They came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and they gathered wine and summer fruit in abundance. And so everybody's getting on with the program, uh, uh, but almost everybody. And moreover, uh, Johanan, the son of uh, Caria, and all of the captains of the forces that were in the fields, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, where he was ruling. And they said to him, uh, do you certainly know that uh, Baalis, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of uh, Nethaniah, to murder you. But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. So somehow they became aware of the fact uh, that the, uh, the king of um, the, the the king of the Ammonites, who somehow was looking forward to the, the collapse of, of Judah so they might come in now and take possession of the land and the riches and the wealth and the abundance that was there. And so he wants control of it. He realizes the Babylonians have set Gedaliah up in this place, so he gets this guy by the name of Ishmael to, to be an assassin now, to kill Gedaliah so that control of, of the country could, you know, come over uh, under 
the Ammonites as, uh, uh, as, as a neighboring kind of, of nation. So the warning is given here, uh, but Gedaliah, he, he doesn't accept that. He doesn't believe uh, that, that this kind of thing, uh, this plot uh, could be true. It is interesting, as we'll see in just a moment, that uh, Ishmael, he was a, um, a descendant of the royal house of David, so he's got David's blood uh, in him, and uh, we don't know really why, maybe for money or something, maybe he felt slighted that he was passed over as uh, having royal blood in his veins uh, for Gedaliah to rule over uh, Judah instead of him, or maybe he just didn't like the idea of Judah being under Babylonian control. We don't really know, but he certainly is not worthy of David's blood being in his veins. And you remember when David, time and time again, while he fled from Saul, uh, the first king of Israel, for years and years, and he had multiple opportunities to kill Saul, and by his own violence and his own control of, of circumstances to then, uh, you know, exalt himself into the throne, and David would never do it. He would never touch the Lord's anointed. That was God's thing to do and God's timing. He did not want that blood on his hands or on his legacy or history. And this man knows nothing of David's heart as we see what he's going to do coming to it in just a moment. And then Johanan, the son of Caria, he spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah. So they've all come together, given him the warning of this intelligence they've received, of this assassination attempt that is coming. And then Johanan comes and gets him privately. And he says, let me go, please. And, and I will kill Ishmael uh, preemptively, and no one will know it except you and me. He wants Gedaliah's permission uh, to, uh, to do that. And then here is, in, in a perfectly natural sense, but not the highest sense, he, he raises the question, why should he murder you? Why should you let him assassinate you so that then all of the Jews who are gathered to you are going to be scattered again and the remnant in Judah will perish? If you're killed, the Babylonians will view it as an attack upon uh, them and their authority, and they'll come out and come back and, and deport every single Jew within the land. And, and he's pleading with him, let me, let me take him out uh, you know, first related this, again, to do kind of a, a preemptive attack uh, 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 in this. And, and the, but Gedaliah looks at it, and he said to Johanan, verse 16, he said, you shall not do this, for you speak falsely uh, concerning uh, Ishmael. He just was he, a man who was so noble in his own heart. It was inconceivable that such a thing could be in the heart of, of another uh, human being. Very, very uh, commendable in a lot of ways, but in this particular instance, very, very uh, naive as well. Of course, he cannot uh, agree with the plot that is put forth by Johanan to go and kill him preemptively. That's a, a violation of, of the law of Moses. But he, he ought to have taken it seriously enough that he severely beefed up his security detail, especially when uh, Ishmael was within his presence. And it's just awful all through human history, isn't it? You've just got these just despicable, nothing human beings 
uh, that take the life of, of, of noble men and women in human history that are good for mankind, good to lead, and so forth. And, you know, the old saying about a dollar waiting on a dime, but this is on steroids. And uh, it's just awful that this is repeated all of the time. And it would have been wise on his part. Anytime Ishmael was near him, that he would have uh, had extra security uh, for it. But, you know, he was without guile and pretty innocent, and, and he'll pay the price for it, and so will, uh, will the nation. And then it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael uh, came, uh, and he was of the royal family, as I told you, David's blood within his veins, and, uh, and of the officers of the king. And he came with ten men to Gedaliah, the king of Ahikam, and he came to where uh, he was governing there in Mizpah. And then they ate bread together at Mizpah. Now, Ishmael is going to kill him in just another verse, but here they are. They're eating bread in Gedaliah's house. And one of the things, number one, the law of Moses absolutely forbid what it was that Ishmael was going to do here. You could not you murder. You can't murder. And that's exactly what he's going to do. But he's going to murder Gedaliah in his own home under uh, the, in, not only in, in uh, uh, violation of the law of Moses, but in violation of the law of hospitality in the Middle East that exists to this very day, that once you come in under another person's roof, uh, you are under the protection of that person and, and vice versa, that no violence was to take place at all. And Gedaliah would have considered, and maybe this is why the lack of the security detail, that anyone would have the kind of nerve uh, to violate this kind of uh, a cultural context and all and kill a man in his own home who would bring that disgrace upon uh, his name uh, among the Jews. And yet again, he underestimated the wickedness of Ishmael here. And then Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, and the ten men who were with him, they arose and they struck Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, and the son of Shaphan. They killed him with a sword, and they killed him who the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. And it's a very terse description there, but here is this wonderful, wonderful man uh, killed, the sword of, of an absolute... Um, awful human uh, being. I'm at a loss for words. And Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were uh, in, in the home and in the, the, the meal uh, with Gedaliah, struck them all down, uh, and that is with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldeans, the Babylonian military force who had been stationed there, and the men of war. And it happened on the second day after he had killed Gedaliah, uh, when as yet nobody knew it. This was kind of a, a secret. Remember, the population is very scant now within Judah. It's spread all over the place. And, uh, and so uh, a day has gone by, and, uh, and now here's the day after. Nobody knows about the murders yet. And that certain men came from Shechem, 
from Shiloh, and from Samaria. These are three cities in the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. They went into captivity to the Assyrians. But here they came, 80 men with their beards shaved, with their clothes torn, having cut themselves, and they were bringing offerings and incense in their hands to bring them to the house of the Lord. So they had heard about the destruction of the temple. They know it's been destroyed. They want to come and mourn and lament the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and they bring offerings with which to do that in the area uh, of the temple. Uh, there's nothing wrong at all, as you see the description there, with having uh, their beards shaved and, and their clothes torn and, 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 and bringing the offerings and so forth. These were typical uh, kind of uh, marks of mourning in the ancient world, but it speaks of them having cut themselves. This was forbidden in the law of Moses. Uh, all of the pagan religions around Israel in those days, one of the things that the priests would do or the people would do in the worship of their false gods is they would cut themselves. And, uh, and offer their blood in this way. And so it gives you an idea that uh, here that, that the, these religious men, they've got the right heart, they're doing some things right, but Judaism has really been infiltrated uh, by the pagan culture around them. But their heart is right. Now Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, he uh, went out from Mizpah to meet them, and he's weeping as he went along. Don't you just want to uh, do something to this guy? What an actor he is. So he's just, they're coming weeping, they're coming crying. He comes and he meets them weeping, so they put their guard down, and it happened as he met with them uh, that he said to them, come to Gedaliah, the son uh, of Ahikam. I know you're coming to see him on your way to Jerusalem. And so it was when they came into the midst of the city that uh, Ishmael, the son of uh, Nethaniah, killed them, and then he cast them in the midst of a pit and the men who were with him. This is just as cold-blooded as, as, as can be. But 10 of the, the 80 uh, were found uh, among them. They said to Ishmael before they were killed, do not kill us, for we have treasures of wheat and barley, oil and honey in the field. And so they said, don't kill us. We know where there's a store of these kind of things in Jerusalem. And again, remember, food was very valuable and scarce and, and so forth. And so they said, we'll show you this if you spare us our lives. And so he desisted and did not kill them among their brethren. Now the pit into which Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Gedaliah was the same one Asa the king had made for fear of uh, uh, Baasha, the king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. And then Ishmael carried away captive all the uh, rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters and all of the people who remained at Mizpah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And Ishmael then, he, he takes all of these people that weren't killed in, in, the, in Mizpah, and uh, he carried them away uh, with him uh, captive, and he departed to go over to the Ammonites. So he was hired by the Ammonite king in order to assassinate. Now he's going to retreat back and, and take the plan uh, further, you know, further down in its course. But when Johanan, the son of uh, Caria, 
And all of the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael the son of Nethaniah had done. So these ex-military for for Judah, they were not present in Mizpah, so they were they were absent. And again, um, uh, it would have been good to have a a good number of them around uh, around Gedaliah, but they were off doing other things at Gedaliah's uh, insistence, uh, perhaps. And, uh, it, but at any rate, absent from the scene, they f- hear of what has happened here. And so they took all of the men and they went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and they found him by the great pool that is in Gideon. And so it was where, when all of the people who were with Ishmael then saw Johanan, the son of uh, Kariah, and all of the captains of the forces who were with him. They see this military force coming. Uh, The people see it, and they realize we're going to be rescued here, and of course they were glad. And then all of the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son uh, of Kariah. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, uh, escaped from Johanan with eight men, and he fled with those eight men back to uh, the Ammonites. So he's been successful in the assassination, uh, but not in, in bringing the people back to uh, Ammon as well. And then Johanan, the son of uh, Caria, and all of the captains of the forces that were with him took from Mizpah all of the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, uh, after he had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, uh, the mighty men of war, and the women and the children and the eunuchs whom he had brought back from Gibeon. And so Johanan now becomes kind of the leader uh, of the nation or this uh, remaining kind of remnant within the land. And they departed and they dwelled in the habitation of Chimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went their way now to Egypt. Uh, And then here's the reason they begin to make their way to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, uh, and I I may not ever uh, read those series of words again for the rest of my life in public and uh, in good riddance to them. Uh, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor in the land. So all of this, of course, makes perfect sense. Um, here is, uh, is uh, Johanan, and he realizes word is ultimately going to get back to Nebuchadnezzar and to Babylon. They're going to realize that not only was the governor that he left in place assassinated within the land, but also uh, Babylonian military as well, and he will come back, and he's just going to slam us over this. I mean, he's just going to burn this whole thing down to the ground and not leave a Jewish presence at all within the land. That was their fear. And so, uh, in the light of that fear, they begin to make their way to Egypt. Egypt was the only part of the Middle, uh, Middle East at that time that was not under the full control yet of Babylon. And so, it was the only place to escape any kind of Babylonian reprisals, and so they begin to make their way. And all of that sets the stage for a significant series of events that happen in the next two or three chapters, which are kind of self-contained, and we'll pick up, uh, Lord willing, next week as we continue through, um, uh, through the book of Jeremiah. Let's have the worship team uh, come forward. And then ask them to lead us in one additional worship song before, uh, other than the closing uh, worship song. And, and just to look at 
this, and I, I have no uh, word of knowledge or prophecy or anything related to this, but I want to allow it to at least happen uh, within my heart, and maybe I'm not alone related to that. When you look at what happens here in chapter 39 and then beyond, and you look at it and you realize all of this was just, it was so avoidable. It was so absolutely avoidable. If they had just turned, if they had just listened to God, heeded God, and it just puts the, 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 the capacity for self-deception apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that is in our hearts, our capacity to justify sin and to somehow feel that I've got control over this. This is never going to backfire on me. This is never going to bite me. Uh, but again, as I mentioned so often, the famous saying, you know, it is the ruthlessness of sin that requires ruthlessness with sin. Sin always is working toward my death, James says. First, the death of my relationship with God and that intimacy, and then to destroy me physically. And we see it so graphic here within the passage that we looked at tonight. And this allow the Holy Spirit to just search our lives tonight to see if something, even the smallest thing, has gained a foothold that is dangerous uh, to us and uh, puts us on a wrong path. All paths have an end, and we want to be on God's path. So let's worship the Lord, and then uh, we'll close in prayer and uh, close with a worship song. Mike, would you?